Smart Talk podcast, your shot of hope for the day, from Pastor Chris Smart of Hope Church Presbyterian in Tampa, Florida. Okay, please turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Let's read a couple of verses there uh, before we begin. Okay, we're now come to verse 18 to uh, 20. Got it here on the screen as well. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the, un- the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men, people, are without excuse. Amen. This is God's Word, and we pray that He will speak to us through it. Now, I I love to to understand how things can work. I'm not very mechanical, but some of you are, and you love the fact that you can get under, uh, into the car and, and understand it. Some of us might really love to understand how people work, and it's great to sort of get into people's thinking and their mindset so that you can understand them. And then just life itself. We all like to think that we understand how life should work, and what happens if it goes wrong. It's really good to be able to understand something so well that you can fix it. And I can't remember if I've shared this illustration with you or not before, but during the Second World War, when Old Blood and Guts, the American general, Patton, was charging across Europe and the armies were liberating all those occupied areas in France, the German army was also there. German army had its trucks and its tanks and its armored columns, and the American army had the same. But there was a huge difference in how much land or how much distance General Patton and the American forces could travel in a day. It it shocked the Germans how fast his armored columns could travel. Do you know why? One of the main reasons was every time a German tank or German truck broke down, they would call out the equivalent of triple A whoever that was in those days for the German army. And they would wait, sitting there like this, until AAA arrived and fixed the tank, fixed the truck. And so the whole column could have to wait until that happened. Well, what happened when an American truck broke down? Every single soldier could jump out and get under uh, that and have a look and fix it just like that. And that was Patton's secret, being able to move so fast because they understood things. So when things were then broken, they could fix them. And I love these words because they help me to understand the world I live in. They understand my life. And if I understand the world well, then I can fix things when they get broken. And that is what helps us to move forward swiftly in life. And that's why I lift these words up to you as really quite amazing words. I will not be able to do them justice. 
So no matter how bad the sermon is today, I want you to come away believing that these words are fantastic, okay? And that you really do need to understand them. And there's a thousand better sermons online that you can listen to that might do a better job. But here's what they, they, they say to us. Because as we look uh, around our life, that these words, they, they allow us, they're almost like a map. They allow us to understand the world we are in, ourselves, our communities, uh, and they help us just to cross the terrain, especially if that terrain is rough. And this world is rough. It is broken, isn't it? Life for any of us here can so easily break down. And what's wrong with it? Why does it do that? Well, the Times newspaper put that out 150-odd years ago, uh, and that was the question, what is wrong with this world? And one writer put in a letter into the letters page. Dear sir, I am. Signed, G.K. Chesterton, famous Catholic author. And that was the whole point. He says, I am, you are, we are. We are what's wrong with this world. And that's why so much of it is broken. And that's what Paul is saying, what God's word is saying in the Bible here uh, in verse 18 through 19. It is making it clear that there's something very broken about the whole of this world. And therefore, we need help. So if you see in verse 18, it says, the wrath of God. Actually, in the Greek language, there's a little word in before there, for, for the wrath of God, which helps to connect your thinking back to verse 16 and 17 that we looked at last week. And what was that all about? It's all about being unashamed of the gospel because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And so this now is telling us, and this is why we need the gospel. We need something to fix because something is broken. This world of humanity is broken. I don't think anybody really would argue with that. They may only argue to the degree it's broken or the reason why it's broken. But it's very hard to imagine anybody who looks out in this world and doesn't believe that it's not broken. And we're given here by Paul that the gospel, the message, the good news, that's all the word gospel means, good news of Jesus Christ is the power we need to fix all that is broken for all of us. And so these words help do that. They also help answer other questions. Maybe when you've tried to um, drop into a conversation on a Monday morning at work that your friends ask you, what did you do yesterday? And you actually are brave enough to say, well, yeah, I went to church. He went to church, and you might get into a kind of conversation about things, and they'll probably throw up one of several standard questions that can just deflect you or catch you out, and you never know quite sure how to answer it. And one of them may be along the lines that this passage is answering. Because if the gospel is the, the solution for the world, and yet this is talking about God's wrath and people who don't believe in the gospel of Jesus, some questions that come to our minds might be along the lines, well, how can God send people to hell if they've never heard the gospel? How can he hold them accountable for rejecting the gospel if they've never heard it? You may have thought that, yes, yourself sometimes. And you have to wrestle with these questions if you're going to answer them on a Monday morning. So I want to put this passage to you for that reason as well. It helps us to understand and it'll help us to understand a question like that and help us to understand that the gospel is the answer for the whole world and that people are accountable 
before God for their unbelief. There's no excuse for unbelief. None at all. So, I want us to see in verse 18 is to first understand God. It's all about understanding God. Then there's a, a, a lesson here in understanding the world, how we can use the world, the creation I'm thinking of, nature, to understand things better. And then finally, when you've got that, you can really begin to understand yourself as a human being. Understanding God, what is this word saying to us? It says, verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. So, there's truth that can be known. How is that truth known? Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. And what are some of the things that He's made plain to them? His invisible qualities in verse 20, eternal power, divine nature. There they are. Okay, so there's things that we can understand about God even if you've never had a Bible. Even if you've never been to a church, if somebody's never heard about Jesus Christ, it answers that question to, is there anybody there for who's really an atheist? And according to these words, you'd have to answer in the negative and say, well, deep down, everybody knows. We'll look in a moment and see what they do with that knowledge. That's another matter. But deep down, the way God has built this world and made you in this world means that there's things about Himself, the Creator of this world, that can be known. And in in looking into this, there's a a book by Don Richardson. Uh, I think it's called Eternity in the Hearts of Men. And and there's a great story from... 1867, in Calcutta, just north of Calcutta in India, the Santal people. And a a Norwegian went to them called Lars. And Lars was a missionary. And everybody's pretty sure that when he went to this particular area of India, the population would be very hostile to anybody who would be trying to preach Christianity. They'd never heard it. No missionaries had been there. He was the first. And Lars went there in 1867 with uh, another uh, chap called Hans. And they went to the Santal people, north of Kolkata. Two and a half million people. And they began to learn the language. And he became very fluent in the the Santal language to the point that the the people were quite tickled that a white man could speak their language. So they they would come to, to hear a white man speak their language. And then they began to listen to the stories that he was teaching, and there was an amazing reaction. They began to say something like, Thakur Jin. And it took him a while to figure out, What's he ta- what are they talking about? And they had this name, Thakur Jin. He's talking about Thakur Jin. And he's going, who's Thakur Jin? And it turned out that, that Jin was like the name for God, and Thakur was the name for genuine. And he realized that these people had never heard the gospel, never heard the Bible being read to them, had a story deep in their psyche about the one genuine God that their people used to worship. And they, as he found out more about that, he discovered that uh, it was a story that would go back to something very much like, almost like a Garden of Eden. 
and how they left that and went on a long journey, hit the Himalayas, couldn't find a way to cross the Himalayan mountains. At that point, they, they prayed, they made a deal with the spirits in those mountains. They knew these were maybe evil spirits, but they promised that they would start sacrificing to these spirits if they would let them through the mountains. And they made this pact according to their own oral histories, and they got through the mountains. Maybe the Himalayan, uh, the, the Khyber Pass, we don't know. But they got through anyway, and they maintained these stories down through the centuries. And through this, Lars was able to understand they knew about this true God who they called Thakur, and yet how he was no longer worshipped by them, but they still had this sense that he was out there, but angry with them, hostile because of their lifestyle, their sin. There was a, a barrier between this genuine God and the gods that they were worshipping, that their religion was full of. And so, what Lars basically discovered was the truth of Romans chapter 1. There are things about God, His invisible qualities, His power, His divine nature, His existence, the fact that He's creator, and the fact that He is distant from us for a reason, that there is a gap, that there is a, an anger, if you like, between those who know about Him and this God. And you may even sense that in your own heart. It's not so far away. I mean, I wasn't brought up in a, a Christian church, though uh, I knew a little bit about Christianity from school. But I could always feel that separation. That, okay, there's a God and I accept that. I'll even pray to Him, the Lord's Prayer, every night from the age of eight. But every time I prayed that, I could feel that gap, that barrier. I knew that there was a God, but I did not know Him. I could not come close to Him. There was something blocking the way. It wasn't until I was 18 that I understood what that was. Sin and God's hostility towards that. And that's what you've got in verse 18 when it talks about a very unpopular word, the wrath of God. So the Santal people sense that wrath of God. I sense that wrath of God without knowing what it is. And here we have the wrath of God in the Bible. And it's all over the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, but the most gruesome pictures of the wrath of God and hell are actually in the New Testament under Jesus' own teaching. Now, it was very common to get lots of hellfire sermons on, on the wrath of God in the past. And now you'll hardly ever hear in a church any message on the wrath of God. Partly is because there's a misunderstanding. We, we think of wrath, the anger of God, and then we think immediately of what we do on Dale Mabry on a Monday morning when we're driving. We're ready to kill somebody because we're so angry. And you've got road rage, and we, we take our experience of anger, and we dump that on God. And we say, oh, is that what the wrath of God means? Well, no, it doesn't mean that. God does not just fly off the handle. He doesn't lose the rag uh, like we might do. What the wrath of God really means is his settled and necessary reaction towards sin because he's holy. He's a God who will pursue justice above and beyond all other things. And 
There's a real danger in the church today that because it's an uncomfortable word to use because of these other associations or whatever, well, we will jettison it. We will just, okay, we'll assume it's there, but we'll never talk about it. But thankfully, when you preach through books like this, you're confronted with truths that are good for us to look at again. And I'd like to put it to you that if you lose the wrath of God, if you lose the heat of that doctrine of God's settled hostility towards all that is wrong and evil in this world, then you also lose a truth about God that we all like, and that is the truth of God's love, that the two things are actually very close together. And if you get rid of the the wrath of God, you make God's love very, very anemic, pathetic, weak. And you don't want that. You, you, you need the heat of God's wrath to make this work. Somebody was describing to me in great detail this week uh, McDonald's fries, that the secret to McDonald's fries is that you need hot oil to keep them really crispy. And within five minutes of them being out of the hot oil, they'll turn to mush. So you've got a very small window to enjoy the crispiest fries in America before they go to mush. Is that true? I don't know. You're all going, yeah, it is. So, okay, so take the heat out, and what have you got? Mush. I want to suggest to you that in our desire, our understandable desire, the sheer magnetism, the honeypot of God's love that's so sweet that it draws us all, that we will only have mush if you have a God who's so pathetic that He doesn't really care about injustice. And so, if you really want to know a God of love, you must know Him as He is. And He's also a God of wrath, a settled hostility towards what is wrong. So, you need that heat of God's wrath to have a deeply satisfying experience of God's love. Without it, you will not be able to understand the length and breadth and depth that His love has gone to, to rescue you from His wrath. That goes back, verse 18, remember? For, go back to verse 16, the good news. We therefore need the gospel. So, you got this barrier of God's wrath, but we need a doorway to open us up. And that's what the gospel is, literally a doorway back into God's presence, where we are are saved from God's wrath. And how does that happen? It happens by, by Christ Himself becoming that doorway and taking the full hit of God's wrath upon Himself. He was it's like almost like cremated under the wrath of God as he hung on the cross. Now, I was just thinking about that, looking for illustrations. Some of the younger kids here, the boys, will have seen this recently in the Infinity War that Marvel does. And there's a scene in there where one of the heroes has to put himself in the eye of this absolute storm in order to create a weapon that will save the universe, basically. And I've, I think it's here. There we go. And there's Thor, and he's in the middle, picture there, and all this fiery energy and light is going to come zapping through him in order to go through that circle to set something on fire. And so he's basically almost destroyed in it. He doesn't, but unless he was in the eye of the storm, in the eye of that heat, there would be no salvation in the story. 
And what that is a picture of, what all of these kind of pictures of sacrifice are reminding us is there is a deep need for that. And Jesus isn't just one story amongst many. He is the story. He's the story that's true. He is the one that embodies what all of these sentiments are looking for. And he's the one who did come into the world. He's the God who came down amongst us and who died in the eye of the storm of his own wrath, his own settled hostility towards my sin and your sin. And he was consumed by that fire as he hung on the cross. He was consumed, hit with the wrath of God so that you could escape it. Take wrath out, you lose that. Take that and you just say, oh, God's a God of love. He just, Jesus comes, he's sweetness and light. He can just open a door and introduce you to God. That's the kind of popular Jesus. Oh, he'll, he'll show you God. He'll take you to heaven. It will be beautiful. It's like walking through a, a, a window into a, a, a meadow filled with flowers. Oh, what a sweet picture. How lovely. That's how most people think about Christianity. But that's the way they should think about it. Wrath. Anger. A fire, a holy fire that could consume and would consume us to the core of our being because of our sin. But he takes it upon himself. Now do you see the love? Now do you see the cost of the love? There's no cost to that love. There's only cost to that love. Now you can begin to get the height, the length, the breadth, the depth. It's beyond measurability to the depth of God's love. So if you jettison the wrath of God, you can jettison the love of God. Because it becomes anemic and weak and meaningless. So only he who knows the greatness of wrath will be mastered by the greatness of mercy. That is amazing that God should forgive us. Not just because of what we are, but what it would take to forgive us. But he did. So you can understand so much about God, even without a Bible. You won't understand that last part. What Paul is saying here is, yeah, you can see things about God, his wrath against godlessness, is the fact that he's a creator, But it would take a special revealing, what we call a special revelation, to understand Jesus. I just put that bit in to cover our understanding about the wrath at this stage. But let's just think of how there's enough information out there for everybody in the world to understand that there is a God that they are accountable to. Okay? And if you look at verse 19... It says, since what may be known about God is plain to them. It's so plain, nothing hidden. Because God has made it plain to them, how? Through the creation of the world. Since the creation, through the creation, by the creation, if you like. The beauty of this world, the stunning existence of this world, helps us to look and find a creator. I think it's so obvious you can't miss it, but the reality is, of course, it's so obvious, as we'll see in a moment, people might not respond to it rightly. But it's there. Now, when I think of this argument, 
and the truth of what the Bible is saying here in Romans chapter 1. I think of two men who are my neighbors in Scotland, Morris and Henry. And Morris was a farmer, and Henry was the secular atheist who just didn't believe in God. But actually, of course, we know from this, deep down he did. And he did eventually admit that he believed that there was something. But Morris couldn't understand Henry. Now, Morris wasn't, isn't, as far as I know, a believing man, but he does believe in the existence of God. And that's what we're talking about at this point. Not necessarily a Christian, but being a person who's convinced that there's a creator. And Morris would literally, from his house, and I remember the conversation well, from the farmhouse, he just pointed out the window. And said, how could you not look at all of that and not believe in a creator? That was a simple, simple argument, isn't it? That's what it's saying there. And truly, you know, just opened out. And, and Henry was just a few hundred yards down the road, so he saw the same view. Morris saw the same view every day. Literally, I saw the same view. Would you like to see the same view? There it is, if I can find it. There it is. That's what we looked at every day of our life in Scotland. That was the view from the bottom of our drive. And you can't quite see it with the, the, the whiteness, but the blue skies, believe it or not, now and again in Scotland, the, the, the white snow of, of Ben Wivis, and then the hills would be green, um, and coming sloping down, that's Dingwall, and then into the Firth, as we call a body of water that flows in from the sea, and then the brown of the farmland. Every single day you would look upon that. And Morris got it right. He says, how can you not believe in a God when you see that? And Henry's looking at it every day. In fact, his wife would paint it regularly. She's an artist. And they didn't get it. You can stare something in the face every day and not get it. Isn't that true, gentlemen? Your wife tells you to get something from the fridge. You open the fridge. It's not there. Close the fridge. She comes back in two seconds later. There it is. You know, staring you in the face. Well, it's like that with creation as well. But again, more of that in a moment. So you can stare this in the face and it's meant and it can and it does until you suppress it, as we'll see in a moment. But it does speak to you about the existence of God, that there is an all-powerful being, supreme intelligence that has created all this. And he's speaking to us through it. See, where does all this come from? It's a very simple question, but it's one that many a scientist who doesn't want to believe in God gets into all kinds of knots and ties themselves up in confusion. The Bible talks about the world being created, here's your Latin for today, ex nihilo, from nothing, okay? Just from absolute nothing. And when in the back in the 60s and 70s they, they discovered the, the concept of the, the Big Bang, that was shocking to some scientists because it seemed to be agreeing with what the Bible was saying. That there was nothing, then there was everything that came into being and then began, like blowing a balloon, expanding, expanding. And how did they discover that? Because it's like they just rewound the clock, like deflating the balloon, watching the universe is expanding all the time. You can measure that expansion in the stars, and then you rewind and rewind, and you come back to a, a point. What does the Bible say? Well, pretty much something like that. It says, in the beginning there was nothing. Nothing. Not even the potential of something, just nothing. But if you listen to many a clever scientist, they will 
this is the unbelieving scientists. Thankfully, there's plenty of scientists out there that do believe because they look at that and they get it. But there's some who, despite seeing on studying these things every day of their lives, don't want to get it. And so, this whole idea of the something from nothing doesn't penetrate. And, but if you listen very, very carefully, they'll always they'll say to you, well, clearly there was nothing in the beginning. And then somehow we got what we got. But if you listen really carefully, they don't believe that. They believe there was a law of science, a law of the universe. Something existed so that everything eventually came from that. It's a little bit confusing, but you can follow it down. That's what they'll say. Or life on this planet, they say, well, well, okay, we'll give it to you. It's too complicated. But but let's say the life was spored by seeds through space and came from another planet. Well, yeah, okay, we could go with that. Then, Then where did the life on that planet come from? You're just pushing the argument further and further back. At some point, you've got to come back to here is everything from nothing in the whole of the cosmos. So is it so difficult, a concept, to believe that there may be a creator? It's actually very easy, very simple. And when you look out in scenes like that, that's exactly the kind of lesson that you are meant to draw. Or if you don't want to do that, you can, you can uh, go down to not just from origins. There's a, another argument from the, or the level of complexity. But all of this is to declare to us, as Psalm 19 said, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. God is speaking to you through the beauty of the world. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, but you can get the message because it looks like that. So that's the argument from origin. Everything from nothing. A brief one, again, from complexity. Just the sheer amazing way that the world has been made. I'll just read it to you. This is about your DNA that's in every cell in your body. And this is what uh, Robert Shapiro, professor emeritus and senior research scientist in the Department of Chemistry at New York University, said about it. He said, suppose you took Scrabble sets, you know, the little words and letters, or any word game set, blocks with letters containing every language on earth. That's a lot of languages, six and a half thousand or so, I think. And you heap them together, and then you took a scoop, and you scooped into the heap, and you flung it onto the lawn there, and the letters fell into a line which contained the words to be or not to be. That is the question. Why are you laughing? That is roughly the odds of the RNA, part of your DNA molecule, appearing randomly on the earth. So I say, well, why should we say that was just by chance? There's no design. It's simple. It's another level that shows the internal consistency of Christianity. I'm not saying there's other arguments and other questions you need to answer first, but When you look at it, this is very internally consistent. Our understanding, the Christian understanding of the universe is very cohesive. It makes sense internally and, I believe, externally. But at the very least for somebody today, if you could see that it makes internal sense within itself, then you'll be halfway towards what God is trying to say to you. And what is He trying to say to you? Well, He's the artist. 
He's created all this beauty, and then he's, he's put his signature like an artist does at the bottom of the picture. So you might know there's an artist, who the artist is. You might go and find out more. You might Google them. You might go to their next art gallery display. You might want to meet them if you're really impressed. You might go and buy some more art from them because now you know who created that beautiful masterpiece that inspires you so much. Well, the artist here wants his creation to show him uh, so that his creation, the apex of his creation, humanity, would know him. You're not a canvas or a pottery jug. You are made in his image, and you are made for fellowship with him. Yes, our sin has broken that, but yes, the gospel now brings the possibility back if you turn to this Jesus Christ. So, understanding God can be done through understanding the world up to a point. This will not tell you about Jesus. You'll not discover Jesus in the gospel through your DNA, but it will make you look for the truth, and then you might find a Bible or a Christian. I hear a message in the church and suddenly begins to fall into place. So, that is the general revelation of God. And then the gospel is that special revelation of God. And God speaks through both, but it's only the special that saves us. Why? Because you've got to understand yourself. Paul wants to take you just a little bit deeper in understanding just how messed up we all are. I hope we've got time for it. Okay, quickly if I can, the big picture. Understanding ourselves now. Listen to how people respond. Remember Henry? How he looks at creation. How do you understand that? To the scientists that study the DNA and yet don't believe in God? Well, the answer is there in verse 18. Who suppress the truth. That's what it comes down to. People suppress the truth. You know what the art of suppression is in politics. If you've got a bad news story, you try and put it out there into the news the day there's another story, good news story, or bigger stories out there, so they can hide the bad news story, suppress the damage that will be done from it. So, we're, we're very good at burying bad news stories under good news stories. And that's basically what Paul is saying here, that we, that we do with the good news that there is a God, that we suppress it. We push it down. Now, for the children, when you're playing on a hot summer's day, i.e. the middle of winter in Florida, and you're so hot you get some water, you get a big hose, and you ever try to put your hand on top of the hose? It's squirting out water, and it's all over the place. If you can't, you try and plug it like that, and it's great fun, and you laugh, and you squirt your friends and whatever. But what you do, you're trying to suppress something, keeping it down. It's going to naturally bubble up, but you're trying to keep it down. That's kind of the picture that Paul's talking about, and I think he's nailed it. I think this is how I understand myself, humanity, people who don't believe. This is what we do, not just on a summer's day, but every day. We take the knowledge of God and we suppress it. We hold this down, this voice of creation, the origins of the universe, the complexity of the world, the beauty of the world, all of these arguments, the consciousness of the human mind. There's so many different arguments that lay it out. We're only touching on a few, but what do we do with them all? We can suppress them, deny them. See, people can hold the truth about God in their heads that He maybe exists, while they can still hold sin in their hearts and ignore God completely. That's what it's saying. There's a 
Uh, we live, we're happy to live with that contradiction of believing deep down that there may be a God, but ignoring him. Wow, that's a contradiction. That's dumb, ultimately. How can you ignore the all-powerful creator? At some point, you're going to meet him, aren't you? But yet we do. And we may suppress that truth about God. It says the truth about God. How do you suppress truth? Well, it was referred to in our prayers. You can take something that's true and, and turn it into a lie. You can take something that's good and call it evil. And you can take something that's evil and call it good. And we do that all the time in our society. And it tells us, why do we want to do all of this? Why would we go about suppressing it? And it gives you the answer. We suppress the truth by their wickedness. And if you like, because of that, all their, ungodly, their godlessness and wickedness of men that's the reason why, because not to suppress the truth would, would mean that we'd have to face up to what we are, our shortcomings, because God is perfection and we're not. And so God is lighting all these candles in the universe and in our lives and in our world and in our relationship, all these candles saying, I'm here, I'm calling to you, I want you to come home to me, I want you to know me. And we're going, we're blowing them out. Why? Because we like to be in the dark. Because when you're in the dark, nobody sees what you do. And in the darkness of your heart, without the big light of God shining in there where it's not wanted, you think you can give in to your desires, which you think those desires will really satisfy you, will give you what you really want. But of course, they're a lie. Your desires were ultimately only going to be satisfied in one thing, the Creator that they were made for in the first place. So we hide from God and all of these kinds of ways because we want to be the boss. We want to continue to serve and sate our desires thinking that's how I will be happy. Even though those desires might be sated and satisfied in very horrible, self-centered, sinful ways. And so because that's the human story, that's how the Bible understands the human condition. Paul flips it all the way back to verse 16, therefore, that's why we need the good news. Therefore, he's saying, we need a gospel, a righteousness from God that is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, because we haven't got it in ourselves. We're lost in the dark, and we even want to be lost in the dark, till the Holy Spirit begins to woo us and draw us, slowly but surely seducing us to the love of God. And so, don't be one who suppresses the truth. Don't be like the kids in the park, not only just trying to hold the water down, but there's other kids that are worse. They just don't even bother playing with the hose in a hot day. They're just busy being occupied with their cell phones going like this all the time. And that's the other way we deal with all of this, just pure distraction. We'll be so distracted, we'll never have time to think about God. Man, I could be golfing all the time, or I could be doing this all the time, or I could be earning a million dollars this year. Lots of things, and they'll not be wrong. There'll be nothing wrong with them. There'll be just tons of them, and they'll take up all your time. And you'll never have time to think about the big picture of life. But God will not hold you guiltless for your unbelief because deep down 
He knows that you know. You do know. You're just suppressing it, running from it, hiding from it. So we all know that there is a God, and therefore we are all without excuse. We all face the judgment of God, the wrath of God, and therefore we need the crucified Savior who takes the wrath of God in your place. Christ has you here this morning because he wants to meet you. And he wants to do business with you right now. And he wants you to have this transaction. He says, right, you give me all your garbage and I'll give you all my righteousness. Simple as that. I've done enough on that cross to satisfy the justice of God that even the worst of sinners can come home to the Father and begin that work of restoration transformation and perfection. So, I hope this passage will help you understand the world that you live in, understand something more of God, and understand yourself. And if you have been suppressing that knowledge up till now, change it and understand that He's calling you home to His love right now. Amen? Amen. Okay, let's pray. Father, as we come before you, it is amazing that we can call our Creator and our Maker Abba Father. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that you would receive each one of us now. We want to ask for you to pardon us for the fact that we have so often tried to blow every candle that you have lit in our lives out, that we have tried to suppress and hide from the reality of who you are. And Lord Jesus, just may there be more light today in our understanding to help us understand why we need you, and how we can have you. And Lord, when it comes to tomorrow morning, when you send us out as missionaries into Tampa, help us to now be able to understand people better and their resistance and their excuses and uh, all their efforts just to get away from you. And yet, Lord Jesus, we know that deep down you're the one that their hearts were made for. And deep down you're the only one who can satisfy the longings of their hearts. So help us to show your beauty, your power, and the amazing depth of your love. Hear us we pray. Amen. You have been listening to Pastor Chris Smart at Smart, sponsored by Hope Church Presbyterian in Tampa, Florida. If this message has encouraged you, please visit our website where you can leave a comment, a prayer request, or find out more information about Smart Talk. Our website is hopefortampa.com Smart Talk. That is H-O-P-E number four, tampa.com forward slash S-M-A-R-T-A-L-K. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it with friends. And join us again next time.